electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to America. Other people want to make friends? Just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain you, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Look, there's systemic risk and then there's market risk. These are two very different things. Systemic risk is just plain old <laughs> bad news that you cannot profit from, even if you're bullish. And when you're facing systemic risk, there's very little reason to buy anything. You just have to take your lumps or get out of Dodge if you can't handle the pain. The house of pain. But market risk? Market risk, the opposite. Ah. It's a godsend if you know what you like because it can create miraculous buying opportunities on the way down. You may find it odd for me to hit a bull button on on what is really market risk, but that's what we wait for here in Kramerica. See, after a day that started strong and then waned with the Dow dipping 51 points as it be dropping 0.08%, and then as that climbing 0.22%, we need to figure out what about this moment is market risk and what's systemic risk so you can do this at home. Now, we know we have several market risks, right? I mean, we have the Fed tomorrow. I mean, who knows what's going to happen there? Who knows what's going to happen with this debt ceiling practice? It's really a lot like the one that put us through the meat grinder 10 years ago. Uh, before the whole thing was resolved. But then there's China, and this is where I differ from most of the people you hear. This is widely regarded as a systemic risk that you can't be bullish about, something that could create a contagion that reverberates throughout the whole world. China's the second, uh, you know, China's second largest real estate developer is this company called Evergrande. And it is on the verge of collapse because it has $300 billion in obligations that it can't pop, it can't meet. Wall Street's worried that Evergrande will crush the banks that lend it money. And from there, the pain will spread throughout the global financial system. Now, countless commentators have described this situation as the Chinese Lehman Brothers, which means it can take down almost everything. 
And I, I say, even though I expect it to fail, that's not the case. I also believe that the contagion will be kept within China's borders. Remember, the PRC has a command economy in free market clothing. When they have an enterprise that's too big to fail, well, the Communist Party can determine how bad things really will be. They have the power to decide who will feel the pain and who will come out unscathed. Right now, it's looking like their government would rather let some of the worst scofflaws get away with the financial equivalent of murder than allow this whole edifice to collapse. And President Xi has made a mistake here. Uh, but it's not the end of the world. See, in the end, the Evergrande fiasco is, well, it's bad news for American stocks, but I think it's market risk rather than systemic risk. Again, market risk, systemic risk. And and I've got to tell you, despite what virtually everyone else is saying, I think it's an opportunity. But I expect more pain as it shakes out. Just because I think it's an opportunity doesn't mean I'm saying it's an opportunity right now. Now, I'm always telling you to have a shopping list ready for these moments when the whole market looks like it's going to get hammered. At the moment, you should focus on companies that have gone through the COVID mill and come out on the other side. Unfortunately, so many of the older companies that have seen their stocks roar, even as their businesses might slow down, uh, be slowing here, uh, they got too much exposure to China. And China is going to have a slowdown because of Evergrande. You need something that can thrive even in a weaker economy. Now, some people could say that could be like Adobe, the digital media marketing colossus that just reported what I thought was an excellent quarter. It was a clear beat and raise with only a bit of hair on it. Yet the stock got hit anyway, which, by the way, has been a consistent pattern before every single run to the upside. Adobe comes down. The decline lasts two days, and then you buy it. More on that later. How about the newly minted companies that have come public recently? Well, we've had so many IPOs in the last year that it's impossible to keep track of them all. I try. I got lists and lists. I got lists of SPAC deals, too. Almost every one of them is a loser. The insiders in these stocks, the new guys, are bailing out left and right. I don't have any of them. So that I, I don't know. Maybe uh, Upstart. I like Upstart. But this, most of these things I really can't stand. But then there are a handful of newer names that I absolutely love that many people seem to hate. Yet they actually might be ideal for this moment. They all have similar characteristics. They are now seasoned businesses with amazing CEOs that have run the COVID gauntlet and come out on the other side in a positive fashion. I'm going to start with one we've been talking about a lot lately, and it's Airbnb. The company was on fire going into the pandemic. Then it hit a wall, the likes of which few businesses have ever bounced back from. They went from gigantic revenues to almost none. So did CEO Brian Chesky give up and fold up shop? No, he he did make big layoffs, but he stayed in the game long enough to realize that renting a house from an Airbnb host was often cheaper, more convenient and safer than staying at a hotel. Turns out Airbnb is the best way to take a vacation in the midst of a pandemic. No crowded elevators, no service, no restaurants. All that stuff's closed anyway. Now, Airbnb just announced on our show last night that it just logged its billionth customer. And it keeps improving its platform, making major improvements in its app endlessly. When my daughter, who taught English in Madrid, got stuck in lockdown in that city for her entire stay, Airbnb let her visit a different part of town and stay in a nicer house each weekend. Now, this, these guys, Airbnb, are basically the only game in town. They pretty much have this whole market to themselves. Then there's Uber. 
Now, this was merely a ride-sharing company when it got started, but then it got into the delivery business with Uber Eats. The company consolidated the industry, then doubled down on delivery, acquiring an outfit called Drizzly that delivers liquor straight to your door. That Drizzly deal has opened up many new markets for them that most of us never even thought existed. It's a two-way street now with Uber. That's how they're now able to raise guidance significantly and why you see underneath me the stock continuing to climb, and it'll probably have a slew of recommendations and upgrades tomorrow. When CEO Dara Kusrashari came on Squawk Box this morning, excellent interview with Andrew Ross Sorkin, he talked about how profitability is finally here. I cheered. I cheered because this is a great company. Next, how about DoorDash? This is another delivery service. The rap on DoorDash was that it would be great as long as the pandemic lasted, but once we beat COVID, people would start going out again, making the platform a lot less essential, if not needed at all. Of course, the pandemic stuck around for a long time, but even when the COVID situation was looking better a few months ago, DoorDash never went away. Turns out people like getting online delivery, delivery whether it's food or liquor. Yep, DoorDash does that too. And by the way, what they like is they get the food, but they don't have to pay for the liquor, which is always higher price. Just as important, when things get tough for the restaurant industry last year, DoorDash's CEO, Tony Hsu, didn't say, sorry, we got to make our quarter pay up. Instead, he offered a tiered system, giving breaks to struggling restaurants. In the meantime, DoorDash helped consolidate the industry, went big in the suburbs, not just the cities. Not long ago, it was a very crowded space, but now it's a two-man game between Uber and DoorDash Grubhub on the periphery. Hey, speaking of someone with a couple of restaurants, I don't know what we do without Hsu and his company. He made himself indispensable. Now, you could argue that all these gig economy businesses could be regulated out of existence if the government ever gets involved. We know California is already making life difficult for the Ubers and DoorDash of the world, forcing them to give their drivers the same benefits they extend to regular employees. The thing is, these are all incredibly popular. That's why I'm highlighting. They're amazingly popular services. So I doubt the state or the federal government will regulate them into oblivion. Who wants to run for office as the guy who killed Uber? or Airbnb, or DoorDash. It's just not what you want to do. Here's the bottom line. I like the services that are Airbnb and Uber and DoorDash because these companies didn't just sit there and take a beating. They got up off the floor at their darkest hour and reinvented themselves. The pessimists, for instance, like Goldman Sachs, which started covers on Airbnb last week with a sell rating, they just don't get it. You either go with Brian or go with Tony or you go with Dara or you just go home. These aren't pre-pandemic stocks and they aren't post-pandemic stocks. They are great companies with dexterous leaders that you should not be afraid to buy into in what many think is a perilous systemic risk moment, even as I don't see it that way. And now we're going to go to John in West Virginia. John. Jim, glad to be on here. And I'm I glad you're have, on. Yes, sir. I also have over 25 years of accumulated investment experience and i'm on main street coming to you on wall street we should okay. team up we could make this work buddy but my question tonight is on general electric after i've already doubled when people said it was going bankrupt now i've already outperformed amazon microsoft apple and tesla in the last year so my question is is it still a buy is warren buffett going to step in and buy this and make it the crown jewel of berkshire hathaway well i have no idea what warren buffett's going to do frankly i I know this sounds a little scatological but i don't really care what he's going to do here's what i care about i think that larry culp 
is doing a good job. The stock is down more than six, 17 points from its high. And I say, all right, I like Airbnb. I like Uber and I like DoorDash. I love the services and I like the stocks and the companies are good because they kept reinventing themselves during their darkest hours. That's what we're looking for. That's what you want in a company. Salesforce kicked off its annual Dreamforce conference, so I'm talking to CEO Mark Benioff to get the latest on everything from the Slack acquisition to the future of the digital landscape. Then, is Big Blue poised to make some big green? Oh, wow, that would be a change of pace. I'm going off the charts with the red hot. Whoa, scholar Larry Williams to see what the future could hold for IBM. It's going to surprise you. And Adobe reported after the bell. I'm checking in with the CEO fresh off the call. Get the latest on why that stock is plummeting. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visible visibility at indeed.com slash mad money. Just go to indeed.com slash mad money right now and support this show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mad money. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. You know us, when the market gets volatile, we like to circle the wagons around our favorite long-term themes, which brings me to Dreamforce, the annual conference of all things cloud-related that's put on by Salesforce.com. Now, normally we go out to San Francisco, uh, but thanks to the pandemic, we had to attend virtually this year. Salesforce is one of our favorite companies, and last month they reported a magnificent quarter. So what do they have to say at Dreamforce? Let's check in with Mark Benioff, the visionary co-founder, chairman, and CEO of Salesforce. Mr. Benioff. Welcome back hey, to Bad Money. How are you? Hey, why are you not here at Dreamforce, Jim? What's going on? There were safety issues on our side, safety issues with a lot of people, but you know where I really want to be is right next to you. I'm going to get right to it. I heard some things today that people have to recognize. This is the year for the trusted enterprise. And there are a lot of companies, frankly, that we do not trust, Mark. Can you give me an example of someone who we were suspicious of that you basically explained what they can do and we now trust? Tim, you're right. All of us need to be able to ask that question is trust our highest value. And that is something that we have to ask ourselves personally, but organizationally as well. And then we have to operationalize that value in our organization and, you know, here at uh, Dreamforce, we're actually using Robinhood uh, as an example. You know, they're a great company run by an incredible CEO. You know the CEO very well, Val- Vlad Tenev. And they've gone through an incredible transformation where they have said that trust and safety are now their highest 
values. It's been a pleasure to work with them. They use our products. They've transformed how they work with their customers based on that premise. And uh, it's an example that all of us can change in a moment and we can shift how we're running our company and we can assess what our core values are. You know, it used to be, Jim, I would go to Detroit and I would read that quality is job one. And, you know, now I, I go there and I'll hear that equality is job one. And that means that the equality of every human being and that Salesforce trust is job one. And, of course, innovation is job one. So you have to decide what are your core values, what's truly important to you. This is incredibly important for every single organization. Well, well you, in Trailblazer, you talk, it's just an amazing book. You talk about the idea of the activist CEO, but also all the stakeholders, and that if you don't listen to your own people, you will be brought down. We have talked about Facebook. Facebook has a lot of smart people, good people internally. How come they haven't been able to rise up and change the culture themselves? Well, Jim, I think that, you know, we've been talking about Facebook for years and you can read the articles, the in-depth investigative journalism that happened through the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post, who are two very reputable uh, organizations who have gone very deep into Facebook and just basically showing that the things that they've been saying about uh, the transformations that they've made as an organization are not true and that trust is not their highest value. And I hope, like you said, look, I believe in redemption. I believe in pardoning. I hope that one day they'll make the change. But today, wow, it's just unacceptable to see these, this kind of behavior in such a large and important company but like that. But it has not and cost them. It has not cost them, Mark. Well, Jim, you know, we're in a world today that we're going through an incredible trans digital revolution. But when we look at the pandemic that we're going through, when we look at the issues in our political process that we're going through, Jim, it's misinformation and mistrust that is being seeded by social networks like Facebook that we need to keep our eye on. So you, it may not have cost them, Jim, but it's cost all of us. And so at some point, somebody's going to say, wow, this is the source of a lot of these problems. You look at what's going on in the pandemic and just the amount of information that's just plain wrong that's on there. It's just, you know, this is this is this has to stop. It's staggering. And they need to have a task force of people who are working with you to say, let's cut this out. Now, I'll tell you something else that people tell me. You know, Jim, they said you brought in Salesforce at that company you found. How many people did you fire? And I said, actually, I was able to add five customer service people because I found out what to do. The Salesforce economy is not one about firing. It's about hiring. And I want you to try to explain to people why you grow and don't fire when you bring in Salesforce. But, Jim, I have been talking to so many customers here at our Dreamforce conference. You know, we're live here in San Francisco with, you know, thousands of people. They're all here securely and safely. They've all been tested. They've all come in on a, a digital certificate so that they say they have been tested. It's on our Health Cloud 2.0, and that's the same one that's used to run New York City, uh, who's also here, you know, that we run their contact tracing and their vaccine management and their testing service. And I'll tell you something, Jim, which is that when you talk to these customers, they all want to go through that transformation. They want to be customer companies. They want to be customer first. Just talking to this great company called Crocs. You know, they make these shoes. They're kind of made using plastic shoes. They're awesome. I actually wear them myself. They just had a great quarter. Their customer 360 first. Another great company here, Sonos, had a great quarter. They were customer 360 first because when you put in these kinds of sales service systems and service systems and marketing systems and commerce systems, you can radically accelerate and surge even through this difficult pandemic.
Well, I would like to just, I want to conflate two things that I think I have to talk about with you. Slack and philanthropy. Let's say I want to be a better philanthropist. I want to know what my organization thinks. I want to know what's the right thing. I'm on Slack. How do I make that a reality? Do I say, listen, I want to, anyone here want to plant 100,000 trees? Well, Salesforce has given away about a half a billion dollars from our foundation. And Slack actually just gave us $50 million into our foundation when we acquire them. They're an amazing company. And you mentioned IBM. You know, they now run almost a half a million users of Slack. It's incredible. But Jim, I guess what I'm most impressed with is the number of companies here who have gone through that philanthropic transformation with us. You know, when we started the company 22 years ago, we put 1% of our equity, 1% of our profit, and 1% of all of our employees' time into a 501c3 public charity. Now, we've given away a half a billion, a half of $500 million. We have given, we have delivered uh, 6 million hours of volunteerism, and we run 50,000 nonprofits and NGOs on our service for free. And every company can do this. This is something that everybody can do. And you're right, in terms of reforestation, look, we've re deforested half the planet now, Jim. We've gone from 6 trillion trees to 3 trillion trees. It's time to start planting trees. We started 1T.org, the 1 trillion tree platform. We already have from U.S. companies commitments for 50 billion trees. And this is a key way for fighting climate change. We have to reduce emissions, but we also have to reforest. Both of these things have to go hand in hand. Well, look, I'm proud that you put this on. I am uh, sad that I'm not there. I wish you a happy birthday. And I love Thank the you. themes that are coming from Salesforce at this year's version Great to of, see the, you. of the best confab I know. Thank you so much, Mark. Great to see you. Great to see you, Jim. Okay. That's Mark Benioff coming from Salesforce at the dream force uh, that I missed. And well, what can I say? Next year will be the year. Stay with Kramer. Coming up, is Big Blue the stock for you? Kramer goes off the charts on IBM next. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash Business Gold Card. When the market turns turbulent like it is right now, how do you get your bearings? Make no mistake, this is what turbulence looks like. The averages meddled down yesterday and then tried and failed to rally today. Sucked a lot of people in, I warned you. In situations like this, you got to fall back on the people who build up a great track record of late. 
And you know what? We're going to the hot hand. We're going to the perfect guy. Remember, we called this action, and we called it mostly because of Larry Williams. He's a legendary technician who's been trading stocks, futures, and commodities since I was a kid. He's written more than a dozen books, created a host of indicators that we talk about constantly. Williams has been on a roll ever since he called the bottom in the spring of last year, predicting that the economy and the stock market would come roaring back much sooner than anyone expected. I saw no one who else who made that call. Now, a week and a half ago, he made another Big, bold call. He said that there was going to be a classic late September swoon. He ran the numbers and realized that we were entering into what's often the seasonally weakest part of the year. Everybody knows September tends to be an ugly month for the market. But Williams looked at the data and concluded that late September is when the pain is going to become unbearable. Specifically, he said that based on history, the smart move is to sell stocks on September 17th. Then you can buy them back roughly three weeks later once the smoke clears. Well, uh, close followers of the show know we went out hard with this call, telling you to sell and sell and sell, even short, something I never do on the show because I had such conviction about this. Sure enough, stocks have already started selling off. They started selling off into the 17th. Then the very next trading day yesterday, the whole market got crushed by the Evergrande fiasco. In all honesty, I'm not the biggest fan of letting the calendar dictate your investments, and you know that. But that said, this is one of the few times of year where the calendar actually does feel all-powerful. And that's why selling in late September has been a winning move. (laughs) No one believes this, but I'm going to say it again. For the last 23 years straight. So what are we going to do? Decide the 24th year is going to be great with all this stuff that we see. And it's all I'm already hearing lots of people say, well, now it's time to start buying. But if you did that into the strong opening this morning, you got obliterated. I think you need to be beware of the calendar. Unless we get some major positive developments and hardly anyone sees come that I don't see many. Your best move may be staying on the sidelines until this difficult period is over. That said, you should also prepare yourself to do some buying in two or three weeks because it is going to be what I call an exquisite buy call. And we're going to finally exit the season out, seasonally tough time, and you're going to own things. But you've got to have a list. What, what, what could be worth picking at uh, as we head into October? Right, given that Larry Williams nailed the sell off so well, you know what I did? I went back to him. I went back to Will and see if there might be any buying opportunities he likes in the not too distant future. And you know what? He's got one. When I checked in with Williams, he had an idea. And I've got to tell you, is pretty darn contrary. It's IBM. Before we get into the charts, I need you to know that this is one of my favorite turnaround stories. Under the leadership of CEO Arvind Krishna, the company has, jettisoned, uh, has decided to jettison some of its no-growth legacy hardware businesses, and he's doubling down on its faster-growing software businesses, especially in the cloud. Plus, IBM is paying it away. It's got a bountiful 4.9% dividend yield. And if the border market keeps getting hammered, that yield might go above 5%. All right, that's not the way you want it to be. You want it to be because they're raising the dividend, but I'll take it. Now, let's talk charts. Let's start with the weekly chart. The red line here is the dominant weekly cycle in the IBM stock over the past several years. Remember, Williams is the master of spotting these past cycles and then projecting them forward to figure out where a stock might be headed. In IBM's case, he sees a 72-week cycle. Enough time for you? And this year, the lows in that cycle should come in late October. If the same pattern holds this year, then that might be the ideal place to start buying the stock on the way down. I like this call. Very forward-looking. We're saying it's going to go lower, but we're also saying exquisite buy. All right? Exquisite buy. Next up, Williams likes to, look, uh, likes to work the fundamentals into his forecast. He's always looking for correlations between particular stocks and important indicators, say, uh, like, like interest rates. So take a look at IBM in black versus interest rates particularly the forecast uh, for interest rates and the forecast for IBM. 
Williams points out that this correlation, you know, when I say correlation, it means, all right, right, that's correlation for those who are trying to figure out what I'm saying. Now, what you see here is the correlation suggests we'll see some more selling in the stock through the rest of the month. Again, that is what we've been telling you. And as we get closer to the end of the year, well, that should abate, right? Be followed by a major move higher. Now, is there a reason IBM would trade along with interest rates? Good question. I can come up with plenty of them. But here's what's so interesting about the charts. We don't really care about why these correlations exist when we're doing chart work. We only care that they exist. Why did the market go down for 23 straight years during this period? Different reasons. But that correlation exists. Remember, when Williams warned us about the late sell-offs in September, we didn't know why. We just knew it just kept happening and happening and happening. Which brings me to the next weekly chart. IBM, with its true seasonal pattern, and now it's in blue. See, Williams has noticed that IBM tends to be one of the best seasonal bets in the whole market. This is another trade he's been following for nearly 20 years. Time after time, IBM tends to put in a seasonal low near the 20th trading day of October. Yep, you typically get a bottom in this one near the end of next month, and that's usually followed by a nice rally. So again, you're not going to catch these at bottom. You want to start buying around here. If you want to get even more specific, let's look at one of Larry's home-brewed tools. I love this one. It's called the Williams Panic Indicator. This is a chart of IBM going back five years with the panic indicator down at the bottom red. We like this tool because it's one of the things that helped him call the bottom last year. And it's been pretty darn useful with IBM, too. Just look at this. If you bought this stock every time the panic indicator went above 20, okay, look at this. Boy, you racked up some great gains. Panic indicator, boom. Panic indicator, boom. Panic indicator, boom. Don't you love that? Now, total, now lately, the panic indicator has been on the upswing again, but it's not quite high enough to create the ideal buying opportunity. However, if we get more of a sell-off, and that's what Williams is expecting for pretty much everything, then the panic indicator will soar, and that's his signal to buy the stock back hand over fist. Finally, consider the daily action IBM paired with the on-balance volume line in green. Now, that the on-balance volume, very important cumulative indicator, measures volume flow, adding the volume on up days, subtracting the volume on down days. I used to do this by hand at my hedge fund to give you a sense of whether big institutional money managers are buying or selling. We care about this because volume is like a lie detector for technicians. Right now, it's telling Williams that IBM's recent decline might be deceiving you. While the stock has been working its way lower, right, the on-balance volume has held up remarkably well, doing much better than the stock price. There you go. This is what's known as a bullish divergence. And it tells us that IBM is in much stronger hands than you may realize. In other words, your fellow shareholders are happy to buy this one at the weakest, which means they probably won't stab you in the back. They're in IBM for the long haul. I like that. And by the way, you would, too, if you would watch CEO Arvind Krishna speak at Dreamforce today. It's a new, more customer-focused IBM, integrating with Slack, by the way, and I think it's a terrific investment. Here's the bottom line. The charge is interpreted by the legendary Larry Williams, who's got the hottest hand right now in the business, suggests that IBM could keep drifting lower for the next few weeks, but he expects it to bottom in late October and then roar higher. This is one of Larry's favorite seasonal trades, and as we saw yesterday, you bet against him at your own peril. No, he doesn't say buy it tomorrow. So when some wise guy says, Kramer says buy IBM, I'm going to do the opposite. All I'm going to say is you are a moron. <laughs> Sam in Colorado, Sam. Hi, Jim. Sam, um, how are I you? I called earlier in the summer. Good. I called earlier in the summer to discuss a firm, um, and on your recommendation, was able to buy it at 56. You betcha. That was a good one. 
totally fantastic. fantastic. However, I sold it after earnings, and let me tell you why. I'm concerned about the quality of the loans that they're making. Um, the majority of the people, maybe not the majority, but the people using a firm, I would guess, don't have the best credit score. And so I'm worried about the default credit risk. But Sam, Sam, the defaults went down. The AI, their artificial intelligence algorithm is working. Literally, they went, even though they grew their business a great deal, the defaults went down. He verified that he did not see any of the patterns that they got from Credit Karma, which showed you a lot of defaults. You know, I believe in Max. I think Max is terrific. I think that a firm is great. We nailed that sucker about, I don't know, what we catch about, we catch like a double. And I reiterate that Max Levchin is the real deal. And he's welcome on Man Money anytime he wants. Nathan in Arizona. Nathan. Hey, Jim, it's Nathan. Booyah. First Booyah, time Nathan. I wanted to ask you about MongoDB. My son works there. I bought it about a month, a little over a month ago, and it has really gone up. You know what? Congratulations for your son working at MongoDB. It is one of the greatest companies in the country. There are a lot of companies that tried to buy them before they came public because it is so excellent. I like it. I think they're some of the smartest guys in the world. And really, you should be very proud of your boy. That is a fantastic company to work at and a great stock. Okay, tonight's chartist thinks this is the most contrary thing you're ever going to see, that IBM could head a little bit lower. I know why this guys are going to say, oh, Kramer says to buy it. They're wrong. But when you get to the uh, in middle of October, you should, because he sees it roaring higher. You know what? This is not the beginning of the show, and it's not the end of the show. There's much more mad money ahead, including my post earnings exclusive with Adobe. Now, what's going on there? Well, I got to tell you, I can tell you what's going on there. Good business. And that's why we're checking in with the CEO. The stock is often down after it reports, and then you say, why didn't I buy it? Yesterday, NAS stole a day for the market, right? But with today's bounce, some professional traders were able to turn a profit. I'm going to let you in on their strategy so you can get a piece of the action and do it yourself. And all your calls rapid fire tonight's edition of the lightning round. So stay with Kramer. When we're in a seasonally difficult period like this one, you got to wait for your favorite stocks to get hit hard enough that they become terrific buying opportunities. Oh, I'm looking at Kramer Fave Adobe right now. It's a digital media marketing company that's become a key e-commerce enabler, if not the key e-commerce enabler. After the close today, Adobe reported what I thought was an excellent quarter. Tencent earnings beat off on a 301 basis, higher than expected sales of 22%. Even better, Magic gave you a strong forecast for the fourth quarter. I thought the stock was already up nearly 30% for the year going the year and hadn't pulled back much in recent weeks. So when the quarter had something that people didn't like, a small billing shortfall, an ever-so-slight cash flow miss, of which I could argue really it didn't have, then the shares went down. So has this thing come down enough to be enticing in a tough market? It sure has been the case. Let's take a closer look with Shantanu Narayan. Shantanu is the chairman and CEO of Adobe. Learn more about the quarter and what he sees going forward. Mr. Narayan, welcome back to Mad Money. Thanks a lot for having me, Jim. Great to be back on your show. Oh, it's great to see you, Shanti. You know, I've got to tell you, I'm gonna, I don't want to bury the lead. You said right at the end before the Q&A, we are clearly on track to exceed our updated annual targets for fiscal 2021 that were just provided in March. Isn't that the real story of this quarter? It absolutely is, Jim. I mean, we're executing and uh, across all our growth initiatives. When you talk about what's happening with content and people creating way more content and the personalization need for that, 
everything that's happening with respect to automating documents and the relevance and importance of PDF in that. And as it relates to customer experience management, as you point out, enabling companies to have a digital presence and commerce, uh, we're in all those three growth opportunities as market leaders. So we feel really good about the quarter. We feel really good about the year. But I think more important, we feel even better about the future. Well, look, I've got to tell you, I mean, I think people who make these snap judgments of the headlines, they should read who you have. I mean, key partnerships, including Walmart and PayPal, Nike and Facebook, Ford and Honeywell, CVS. I mean, I don't know. People want to talk about the guys I, I love, and so do you, the guys at Shopify, because they have a lot of three, four and five person companies that do business. But these are the marquee clients. How are you able to consistently get the, the Nikes and the Fords of the world to come to Adobe? Well, I think what we did better than everybody else, uh, Jim, was to really say we had this vision for what we had to do to enable any business to engage directly with their customers. And this had to do with their digital presence, that had to do with the data and insights, how they're orchestrating the journey, whether that's online or offline, uh, what they're doing with commerce, whether that's physical good, whether that's uh, digital goods, whether you're a B2B company or a B2C company. And I think it's our product innovation and the vision that we had that really appeals to these larger customers because they recognize that they need to have a partnership with a company that scales, uh, with a company that has a really open ecosystem, with an SI community that can help them navigate what needs to happen with digital transformation. And I would add that we're always doing uh, one better by adding another dimension to that. And so Workfront, for example, as we did with our digital experience solutions and enabling them to also have the workflow to have these marketing campaigns executed with agility, I think our ability to look around the corner gives people a lot of confidence in terms of working with Adobe, uh, Jim. Well, I think also a lot of people think that what they see in a site is that company's work. But it's really you. If it's on the channel, these companies are retailers, say. They don't know anything about on the channel other than the fact that they have to have it. But they have to turn it over to you because you have the analytics and the fulfillment. I don't think people realize that you are the engine behind Omnichannel, even after all this time. That's true, Jim. And I think one of the other areas where we get instant credibility is that when you think about enterprise software companies, and there are a number of them, there isn't another company that has kind of the B2C and the B2B business that Adobe has. And the fact that we are actually using our own products to engage with billions of customers uh, and we can give them the roadmap as well as the playbook. And so the fact that we talk to them about how we've used this within Adobe.com to engage with our customers, everything we've done on Creative Cloud and Document Cloud, I think people really appreciate that we're helping them not just with their technology, but with the people and the processes. And so we will continue to do that in terms of both the innovation that we deliver and how we reach forward in terms of helping customers through their own digital transformation. Well, well, this is great that you point this out, because one of the things that you say in your website is that, look, it's terrific to have insights. Insights matter. And a lot of companies tell me, listen, we have insights. But what matters more are the actions. And I think money, there there are a lot of companies that have actions, Shantanu, and a lot of people have insights. But nobody has both except for you. And I think that's the secret as far as I can tell. 
That's really uh, profound, Jim. And I think it is because, you know, it's about how do you activate that data? Everybody talks about the cookie-less world and what's happening with respect to first-party data. But collecting the first-party data is only part of the equation. It's what you do with the data that makes you either deliver a compelling experience or just be completely left behind. And so I think it's activating that insights uh, through these personalized campaigns, through the journey orchestration, through customer experience management, which is where the magic really happens. And we talked about in our prepared remarks how 80% of the people who are now using our products are actually using our AI, the Adobe Sensei magic that we have. This is working on their behalf. Yeah, and people who don't understand this first versus third, these guys have the best explanation. If you go to their site, you realize how powerful you can be. I look forward to Adobe Max. You're going to tell more. Historically, buying the stock between then and Adobe Max has always been right. Shantini, thank you for all you're doing to schools, for empowering people, and make them get the creativity that they really have into realization. It's great to see you, sir. Fantastic quarter. Thank you so much, Jim, for having me. Always a pleasure. Guys, look, this, you know why the stock's down a little? Because it's the only stock in the whole market that's, that hasn't been down. Between now and their celebration, Adobe is the way to go. Man, buddy's back into the break. Coming up, a storm is coming. So give us a call. Kramer's got the answers to all your burning questions. The lightning round is next. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski Daddy? Time for the lightning round. Here's my Gavin. Gavin in Nevada. Gavin. Hi, Jim. Hey, Gavin. Yo, I I called for your advice today on a clinical stage bio company headed by Dr. Harari, who once headed the Cell Gene Cell Therapeutics Division. I'm calling about cellularity. I tell you, I remember Dr. Ryan because the cell gene scores down the block for me. Uh, and Bob Eugen lives next door to me. This cellularity is interesting. Nobody likes it, but this is the kind of company, if you buy it here, you might just get real lucky. I say take a shot. Can I go to Sahas in Illinois, please, Sahas? Hey, Jim. Good evening. My name is Sahas. Uh, thank you for sharing your wisdom with us. Oh, thank you. Thank you. All right. I have a simple question. I am wondering about Joby Aviation, J-O-B-Y. Yeah, you know, we looked at that. You know, we make jokes that it's flying cars, but what really matters is I like Blade. We found out that Blade was very cheap and it's growing in a lot of different places. I think that's the one you should look at, and I'm not a big SPAC fan. Andrew in Texas. Andrew. Booyah, Mr. Kramer. Thanks for taking my question. Oh, my, my pleasure. Booyah right back. I'm looking at a home health care company, LHC Group. The ticker's LHCG. They're down 20% on the year. What do you think? No. I mean, look, I have, I'm very selective when it comes to that particular group. I like United Health, and I really like Centene. And the reason why I like those is because you don't get that kind of action when you buy one of those companies. How about we go to Craig in California? Craig. Booyah to you, Ski Daddy. Wow, I like that combo. What's happening? Uh, yeah, I've been looking at some inexpensive stocks lately. I found one under ten bucks. Uh, solid EPS beat the last few quarters. It's got a div near three percent, down considerably from a fifty-two week high, down big from all-time high. I'm a long-term investor. Thinks it can possibly double from here. 
Now, will this stock deliver me some gains, or should the stock be labeled return to sender? Uh, Pitney Bowes, TBI. Oh, return to sender. Let's go to Michael in California. Michael. I was just being dismissive of PBI, but I've lost too much money for people then. You know what? We're going to have to end the lightning round. I should have gone longer about, about Pitney Bowes other than to say that it, I don't like it. And that, ladies and gentlemen, the conclusion of the lightning round. The lightning round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. When the market opened up 300 Dow points this morning and I said you should fade it, meaning take profits or sell, lots of skeptics argued that I'd be wrong, especially the scatological scoundrels on Twitter. Then the market swiftly gave back most of its gains, and those same skeptics wanted to know how I could be so right. The answer? I don't practice Santeria. I ain't got no crystal ball. But what I do have is a history of watching these bizarre up openings over a period of 40 years. And here's what I found. When the averages are down 2%, and many stocks are down even more than that, and there's a 10 to 1 sell to buy ratio, that means you have to hold your nose and actually buy something, anything, even if it hurts. And it will. I figured out the 2% rule working with Karen Kramer for many years at the old hedge fund. As for the 10 to 1 down to up ratio, that's something the late great Mark Haynes from CNBC figured out for me. So I integrated it into my calculations, and then we used to talk about it all the time on our network. Back in the day, I ran what was known as a balance book with many short positions to offset my longs. We didn't do it in a traditional way, though. At the hedge fund, we would go long, deep in the money calls and then short common stock as the stock lifted. I pretty much pioneered this method. I called it stock replacement. And I spent about 100 pages explaining how to pull it off and getting back to even. Think of it as a way to bet against a stock with much less risk than what I see so many people trying to do right now or those clowns who bet against AMC and GameStop and got their heads handed to them. Here's what you do if you want to bet against something. You first establish a long position by buying a deep-in-the-money call option, typically at a couple of months, and a strike price that's five or six points below where the stock currently trades. Sometimes you can do it down 10 points from where the stock trades, but I think that's too, uh, too much, otherwise too much capital. Step two. As the stock goes higher, you can short it against that call. I like to do it in two-point increments. This way, you never get squeezed like the people did in GameStop or AMC because you're shorting against your deep-in-the-money call options. It's like having an insurance policy in case the trade goes against you. Step three, when you think there's going to be a big sell-off, as I predicted last week, then you can add to your short position, get more aggressive as the market goes up. And that's what I would have done last week when I said I would short the stock market. And again, I don't talk about shorting on the show if I were still running a hedge fund. Yesterday, when we hit those levels I mentioned earlier, down 2%, 10-1, down to up ratio, I would have covered my common short position, kept the call on. But I would cover the common short position, perhaps even below the level of my call option. A stock that falls below your deep in the money call is really a free put. Then today, when the market opened up, I'd sell the common stock again and reestablish the short. If you had done this, say, against FedEx tonight, will you be sitting pretty? In other words, at the hedge fund, I would have scalped. I I would have sold stock short ahead of yesterday's meltdown, then covered that short position down 2% yesterday. Then I started all over again when the market rallied up today because that was going to be wrong, setting up a new short position so we could ring the register into the pullback. Now, I know that's complicated, and I don't recommend shorting on the show. I'm no longer a trader. 
I don't even like trading. It's very hard to do even when you're a full-timer. However, when I see a situation like last week, when the market's headed into a period that's caused serious declines every year for two decades, then I think you've got a good reason to do some short selling, and I want you to do it the professional way, the way I just showed you. 20 years of downs, a lot of down. You've got to be ready for it. If you're approaching the market as a trader, then when the averages collapse, you close out your short position by buying back stock. When it opens up, you the next day, you short all over again. That playbook has worked so many times for me that I can't even count. Now, the important thing is not following the playbook. That's too hard for most people. You just need to recognize this playbook exists and lots of hedge funds are following it. That's how I knew that the bull buyers who came out this morning uh, would get slaughtered as the scalpers who bought into yesterday's decline blasted out of the positions right into the fools who paid up. Once you learn to recognize this pattern, you'll be able to see it, too. And you'll say, oh, that's what Kramer's doing when he says that it's time to fade the opening. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise you I find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 